0: I love how we laughed at the end of a scripture reading that ended with laughter thank you Marshall once I sat where you're sitting literally in McKenna Chapel sometimes in Estes Chapel I was an MDiv student here for four years and I would define myself in that time as a poor seminary student in more ways than one when I was a poor seminary student living in Wilmore Kentucky I was offered one year, my last year, I think, a chance to attend a conference in Orlando, Florida on evangelism. Now, something in me had been sparked an interest for evangelism during my time here at Asbury. Maybe it was sitting in a classroom with Bob Tuttle. Uh, Maybe it was hearing the words of Robert Coleman. Um, Maybe it was just the life of this place and knowing how lives had been changed and wanting to see them changed in the same way. I could not wait to get to Orlando to attend this conference. Um, I was even offered a chance, not just to go to the large sessions and hear the speakers, but to meet with this small group of men and women who were meeting afterwards, whose lives were so invested in this that they traveled around the world and their entire vocation was sharing Christ with the unsaved. I could not wait to get into that room and learn from those men and women. There was just one problem. I may have mentioned i was a poor seminary student and thus orlando could have been as far away as the taj mahal because i had no money to get there no means i wasn't sure how i was even going to pay my tuition that semester much less a plane ticket to florida registration fees for a conference and a hotel for a week well god began to do that thing that god does when he calls us to something and then provides a way for us to walk in it. I got a scholarship to go to the conference, one that included food and drink for the week. Then someone sent frequent flyer miles to cover the flight, my plane fare, and I was all ready to hop on the plane when I realized that one last detail. I had nowhere to stay. I was a person without a place, and I could not pay for a hotel. For some reason, the hotels in Orlando were pricey. I mean, it's not like it's a vacation destination or anything. And I was just about to give up when someone who worked in one of the offices here at Asbury heard about my plight. They let me know that there was a couple who lived in Orlando, not alumni of Asbury, but admirers, friends of this institution who wanted to open their doors to anyone who represented this place, friends, When you go from here, the name Asbury will be one that will get you invited into places. Honor that name. This couple wanted to welcome me to their home to stay for free for the entire week. And it was an incredible feeling of God's provision, that God was prompting his people to open their doors and welcome me without knowing anything about me. It was like prevenient grace all rolled up into an invitation. I called this couple and talked to them on the phone, and I assured them I would be no trouble at all. No need to prepare anything for me, no special meals, no red carpet treatment. Really, I said, I would just sleep on a mat in the garage if I needed to, if that's what they had for me, just just to get a chance to be there. Well, when I arrived, what I found was exactly the opposite of a mat in the garage. This family provided hospitality like I had never seen before. The minute I walked into their home, I felt as if I belonged. There were little gifts in my room to welcome me that seemed like they were made just for me. They had purchased these snacks that they put in a basket in the kitchen that were all mine, and if you know me, my love language is snacks. There were little touches everywhere that made me feel as if I had been anticipated and welcomed. And when we sat down to a meal together that evening, it wasn't anything fancy, but they had this gift of making me feel as if I had been part of their family forever. It was clear that especially the wife of this family had an amazing gift, one that I had never witnessed before and I don't think I've ever seen since. This particular gift of making people feel welcomed and safe and loved. And so I asked her before I left that week about her incredible gift. Where did she learn it? Was there a book I could read? I mean, I was a seminary student. I figured the answer to everything was in a book that I could read. And that's when she told me her story. When she and her husband had first married, her new mother-in-law made it clear to her before the wedding that she did not approve Of her son's choice she made it clear during the wedding that she was not blessing this marriage but it became ultimately clear in their first visit as a married couple to the mother-in-law's home just how committed this mother-in-law was to her decision not to welcome when they arrived at her mother-in-law's house remember her for the first time never having visited before not only did her mother-in-law not come to the door to welcome her she went out of her way to make the opposite point. She had made space for her son's things in his old room, but clearly only space for one visitor. She had only put out a single guest towel in the bathroom. The husband had to go and ask for another one. And friends, when it came time for them to sit down to dinner, there were only two places set at the table. Her husband literally had to get up go to the kitchen and get her a plate so that she could be served. This woman had majored in passive aggressiveness. <laughs> and here's how this daughter-in-law processed her hurt from this experience. She said, I knew then what it was to feel unwelcomed. And I committed to myself that no one would ever feel that way in my home. I wanted people to have the exact opposite experience. And so I want everyone who comes into my home to know just how welcome they are. I want everyone to know that there is a place set for them at my table. And when I think about her, as I do often, I think about how we can't control the circumstances that happen to us. We have no power over how other people treat us. The only decision we have is how to respond and what to do with those experiences. And what might have made this woman bitter, even to pass this on to other people or generations, instead drove her to kindness, drove her into an unusual and beautiful gift that she discovered through her pain. And when I think about her, I also think about her tremendous gift of welcoming strangers who become friends which is what we see, what we heard today in the reading of Abraham's story from Genesis 18. Abraham's gift of hospitality came in a day where there was no Marriott, no La Quinta, no Motel 6. There was no Denny's, no IHOP, no, I don't know, Cane's. So when people were on the road, they were outside Of their town outside of their tribe outside of their place of safety and provision and they were extremely vulnerable they were at the mercy of the local residents for a place to stay and something to eat and secondly because of their safety and security because of stories like the good samaritan which might not have seemed so unusual that a travel a traveler might be stopped and beaten and robbed and then left no one to help them because they were a stranger because those stories happened to people. It was a thing of risk to travel and it was a thing of trust that you would be welcomed into others' homes. So in Abraham's culture, there was this understanding that welcoming the stranger was of utmost importance, that it brought safety and provision to the stranger, but that it also brought honor on your own home and shame if you do not welcome all of our biblical language in the Old Testament reflects that, this command to welcome the stranger and the traveler, the displaced and the refugee, and especially those from outside our tribe. Think of Abraham and Sarah's initial calling. You will be blessed to be a blessing, and your blessing will be for all the nations, not just those related to you or those you call your own. They're acting out this command and this story In this story, the act of hospitality is defined not just as giving space to people who look like us, even though they don't really need the things we offer, it's described as giving space to those who are marginalized and hungry and alone and in need. It's not done to gain advantage. It's never done to gain attention. It's not ambitious. It is for the least of these. Hospitality in this story and moving on into the New Testament is given so that you wouldn't receive anything in return. It's not done with an eye for how you might be paid back. That's why Jesus says, when you have a banquet, invite those who can't repay you. Invite those who need the grace that you're offering the most. But we've reduced hospitality to a spread in a women's magazine. It's been trivialized and commercialized, But setting a place for someone is anything but trivial. It can be a life-saving and life-giving act in so many ways. It's far more than getting out the good dishes and the towels that only the guests can use or setting a spread that is meant to impress with elaborate food or fancy decor. So what does it look like to set a place in a community like ours? where some of us, most of us, aren't living in a home that looks like something out of a magazine. Some of us live in dorm rooms, some in small spaces, overflowing with children, all with lives that are full and messy and real. And many of us have not begun to feel at home in this space yet. We are both still the resident and the traveler the one who needs to be welcomed, and the one who can provide a welcome, what does it mean in this community to set a place for others, to provide our gifts in a way that make the marginalized feel that they are welcome at the center? In addition to opening our homes, just as Abraham did, sharing our resources and our food, it can also mean making a space for people to be themselves. It can mean making time for someone else to listen and talk and share. It can be the hospitality of providing a listening ear for someone else's story or for them to share their heart. It means making room outside of our own preoccupations and needs. Taking things off of our calendar so that other people can enter into our space and our time. It might mean making time to play with a child, or to play as grown-ups. It can mean making room for other people's experiences, people who don't look like us, trying to understand their cultures and what it's like to come to a place that looks so foreign from where you have been. Making room can often mean making room for differences of other people. And it means making room for the messiness and the chaos of other people's lives not expecting them to clean everything up before they enter into our space. It means setting a place and welcoming people's imperfections there. And that's a difficult one for us, this room for other people's imperfections, because honestly, we sometimes aren't sure that we're okay with our own imperfections. And we have this feeling somewhere that we just might need to get it all cleaned up before anyone else can come in. My five-year-old daughter Kate has been struggling with perfectionism lately. It starts early. She loves to make things. We call her Crafty Kate sometimes because she can make anything into a craft. I defy you to try to throw away the empty tissue box or the cardboard roll inside the toilet paper roll because if you are caught walking towards a trash can with something that looks like it could be turned into a craft, you are in trouble with Kate. She makes crafts out of everything, and then she can make her crafts into another craft. It happens. And she often puts the last little touch on something and then holds it up for us to see and declares it perfect. Um, And because she's so advanced, sometimes she says it in Spanish, perfecto. (laughs) The problem is that she has this incredible vision for how things could be and yet she has the manual dexterity of a five-year-old. Anyone have a vision that outreaches their capabilities sometimes? So she messes up a lot every day. She writes numbers and letters backwards. She draws draws a line that's too thick or too thin. She cuts the paper in the wrong way. And then, according to her, everything is ruined. It's perfect or nothing in Kate's eyes. And you can just start to watch it happen. Her little lip comes out. It starts to tremble. The eyes begin to fill up water. And then you can almost count down. Five, four, three, two, and meltdown. The screams begin. What Kate loves to do is often stopped by her love for it. She loves it too much to continue when it's not perfect. I was trying to figure out how to make room for this child to grow in being comfortable with the imperfect, how to help her address this need and and knowing that somehow she learned it from me and I need to address it as well. And a dear friend gave us a book a couple of years ago that I found on our shelf that was just perfect for the moment. It's a book called Beautiful Oops, There's a page that's torn, that looks like maybe someone made a mistake in this book, but when you turn the page, someone has drawn a little cartoon alligator, and the tear is his mouth opening and closing, and underneath it says, I made an alligator, beautiful oops. On the next page, someone's been painting, and a huge spot of paint has fallen into the middle of the page, obliterating the picture that's being painted. But when you turn the page, that blot, becomes a butterfly landing on the flowers that were initially on the page. And at the bottom is written, I made a butterfly, beautiful oops. So the other day we were making a craft and I saw that something had gone wrong and I saw the lip come out and begin to quiver and I began to cover my ears just waiting for the next moment. And then Kate ran out of the room. She went and got a sticker and put it over the thing that had gone wrong. And she came back and held up to me and said, look, mommy, beautiful oops. Now, if she can learn that, why can't I? God makes beautiful oops out of our lives. And it's beautiful enough to welcome other people into our imperfections so that we can be comfortable with theirs. When we make room to accept others as they are, it means we're trusting God with them. And thus, taking the harder step of trusting God with ourselves. So back to Abraham and Sarah. I want to talk about how their imperfections in the story, how their their wounds even became a gift that they offered. First, let's let's talk about how long this event actually took. Um, We have Allison Norman in the room, and so I know we have a star baker in our midst. So I have to ask, when you are called to go get some flour, as Sarah was, and begin bread from scratch, how long do you have until there's a loaf on the table? Five hours. Okay, that's if it's yeast, right, that we're expecting to rise. We're not sure what she was making here. Um, I learned that lesson the hard way because I got into baking bread. It was a phase. It's over now. I apologize. Um, And, I would often get in the mood for a loaf of bread about nine o'clock at night, and I would start a loaf of bread. And then about two in the morning, I would think, dear Lord, what was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) There are no shortcuts with bread from scratch. And I don't know if we have any ranchers in the room, anybody grow up with cattle? Yes, Marshall, awesome. So Abraham, when he meets these guests and asks them to have a seat and wait for dinner, he rushes out and ropes a calf. I don't know how long we have between roping a calf and veal on the table, but I'm assuming longer than five hours. So this whole process means that these strangers, these visitors are with Abraham and Sarah for a long time. They're there in the midst of their household, watching the comings and goings, and they have a chance not just to witness them at their best, at their worst when I was writing this sermon out for today I wrote down the phrase hospitality means letting people in and I meant to move on from that it just seemed too obvious but I had to go back because it had more than one meaning hospitality means letting people in in addition to opening our doors it means vulnerability doesn't it because to open your door is one thing I mean If you were called to open your door today, like what if I came to you right now and said, hey, right after chapel, I'm coming to your room. What would go through your head? I mean, this is the Zacchaeus moment, right? I'm coming to your house today. What would happen in your head? What would you picture if you knew someone was coming over right now? How did you leave your space when you left this morning? Now, for many of you, perfecto. But some of us, not so much. my first reaction would be to rush home and tidy up. Why don't we invite people in? It's because we see the mess. Our home is a reflection of the state of daily living, which is not a perfecto state. Um, If you let people see who you are, you let them in. And if you don't, you are missing out, as are they. This little devotional by Dennis Kinlaw, who died a little over a year ago. He was the president of Asbury University for a while. Today, May 3rd, had this paragraph. Many of us have a fetish about appearance. I'm not talking about clothing and external appearance, although that can be part of it. I'm talking about wanting to impress other people all the time, refusing to lose in front of other people, choosing not to accept even second best. Oftentimes, we even become resentful towards others who make us look bad, and we shrink from being identified with them. What insufferable bondage it is for us and for those we love when we have to look good at every social engagement and in every situation. This explains Paul's description of love as the person who does not have to boast and is not proud. How often we destroy priceless relationships by having to keep up our appearance when we ought to forget about ourselves. Often our fear of letting people in has more to do with our fears about ourselves than our fears about others. Because to let people in means to be seen in our everyday state this is more than some spread in Better Homes and Gardens it's more than a segment on HGTV and it actually doesn't mean entertaining at all because entertaining is to put on a show isn't it we don't need to enter- entertain others to let people in entertain- or entertaining means to put on a mask to seek to impress people and entertaining promises a lot but it really delivers very little. You can walk away from being entertained, still feeling empty and alone. But notice what Abraham does here. He promises a little, just a little water to wash your feet, just a little bread, but he delivers a lot. He prepares a feast. He lets these folks in and they stay and stay and stay because he is preparing for them. And thus they get to witness not just the attractive parts of his life, but all of it. Abraham was looking to serve, to provide shelter and food and safety for these strangers. But in order to do that, he had to let them in. When you let someone in, they can see your pain. And so they could see there in Abraham and Sarah's space that there were no little feet following Abraham's around as he rushed to prepare. There was no child's space in the tent there was no cradle there was no children's art tacked up to the refrigerator in the awareness of Abraham and Sarah's imperfection of their deepest wound their deepest lack and pain the strangers themselves brought a gift for the hosts they declared that in due season, Abraham and Sarah would be blessed with a baby. This is a fulfillment of a promise that God has been making them to years. And and Sarah laughs at the absurdity of it all. And she gets a bad rap for that, but please, she's allowed to laugh at this one. And then the stranger speaks a truth over her disappointment and her disillusionment. Really, is anything too hard for the Lord? Walter Brueggemann says this is the defining question of this story. It's the defining question for all of us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Has our disillusionment and jadedness made us identify something that we believe God cannot fix? That God cannot do? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The NRSV is the outlier in the translation saying, is anything too wonderful for the Lord and really why is it that things that are wonderful are often hard to come by but the Lord wants to do something that is both hard and wonderful for Abraham and Sarah and he wants to do something that is both hard and wonderful in your life it's only by opening the doors that Abraham and Sarah get to receive that gift Here's the pattern that I see in their story. They let someone in, they allowed them to see not just the best, but the worst of their life. And because they let someone else in to receive their gifts, it turns out, are we surprised by this anymore? It turns out that the givers are the ones who receive the greatest gifts. Friends in ministry, friends headed to ministries, this is gonna surprise you over and over again. But don't let anyone tell you that your life has to be the one that is the most cleaned up and perfect in order to see the gifts of God. Letting people in means giving the gift of who we are. And it means receiving a gift, not just from others, but from the Lord. So here's the mystery of this story. Not just that they were in a posture of giving, but instead received a greater gift but that the identity of these strangers who, as of yet, we haven't really talked about, these strangers who are first the recipients of a gift and then the givers of an eternal blessing from God, that in the same mystery of Matthew 25 and Jesus' words, when you did this for the least of these, you did it for me, we find that Abraham and Sarah are actually providing hospitality to the divine. There's the mystery of the story that where Abraham and Sarah meet strangers, they're actually having a meeting with God. It opens with the line, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And although there are three visitors in the story, the language keeps transitioning back and forth and back and forth between singular and plural, between three and one. Sound like anyone else you know? In some mysterious way, To welcome the stranger is to welcome the Lord. To open ourselves and let other people in to who we really are is to let the Lord in. In the 15th century, um, a Russian painter named Andrei Rublev represented this scene, this story from Genesis 18 in a beautiful icon that's called by some the Trinity, but by others the hospitality of Abraham. He painted it in 1411 for the abbot of the Trinity in a monastery in Russia. And Rublev portrayed here what became the quintessential icon of the Holy Trinity, depicting these three mysterious strangers at the table who visited Abraham, whose presence represents the presence of God. Rublev depicts the three as one Lord. They're equal in size and stature, Each holds a rod in their left hand, symbolizing their equality and authority. Each of them wears a cloak of blue, the color of divinity. And the face of each is exactly the same, depicting their oneness. But there are some differences in the three, and most people believe that he painted them in the order of the doxology, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father figure... Is on the left. His divinely blue tunic is cloaked in a color that is light and almost transparent because he is the hidden creator. With his right hand he blesses the sun with whom he is well pleased. His head is the only one lifted high and yet his gaze is turned to the two other figures. The sun is portrayed as the middle figure in this picture. He wears both the blue of divinity and the reddish purple of royal priesthood. He is the king who descends to serve as priest to the people he created and to become part of them. With his hand, he blesses the cup that he is to drink, accepting his readiness to sacrifice himself for humanity. His head is bowed towards the Father on the left, hand to the cup, eyes to the Father as if to say, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The spirit is indicated in the figure on the right. Over his divinely blue tunic, he wears a cloak of green, symbolizing life and regeneration. His hand is resting on the table next to the cup, suggesting that he will be with the Son as he carries out his mission. His head is inclined toward the Father and the Son, but his gaze is toward us. Here is the community of the Holy Trinity communing together. And here's the thing about this icon. It's shaped in a way that the circle is continuous but tightly formed. But it's also an open circle, isn't it? and there's a place left at the table. There's an invitation here for us. We are drawn in because they have left us a seat. God, in his grace, has prepared a place for us at the table. This icon's been called the hospitality of Abraham, but isn't it the hospitality of the Lord? We are known. We are loved. We are welcome here. We are the travelers, the pilgrims in a barren land, and we are utterly dependent on the welcome of the Lord for our nurture and provision and our safety. This is the hospitality of the Trinity welcoming us in, guiding us home to himself, and setting a place for us so that we know we are welcome, every part of us, and known and loved.